well-knowledgeable, up there. He was not just a Pharisee, he was a ruler in there. Not only was he that, he was religious. Again, he was called a Pharisee. He had erred to the strictest of religious and ethical standards. Now, I like this, this is, it's, it's people like this, it's situations like this where I like to stop and just kind of meditate and try to think of this man. Honestly, I would love, I, I'm looking forward to meeting Nicodemus in heaven. I'm sure that he has had a multitude of people that have come to him in heaven and have discussed what he went through. That's, we've got eternity. We've got eternity for that. We, we wind up thinking when it comes to the Pharisees, we wind up thinking about uh, along the line of those who were even wicked, who were self-serving, but not all of them were like that. There's a book called uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. And there are some things that you can get about, for instance, the Pharisees. It's fascinating to read. Apparently there were seven kinds of Pharisees. And it's interesting to read. There was the Shechemite Pharisee. He simply kept the law for what he could profit. Like Shechem submitted to circumcision to obtain Dinah. You remember that from Genesis 34 with Jacob and his sons. And you can read that there in Genesis 34. Then there is the humbling Pharisee. He appeared to always hang his head down. So he looked humble. I'm just saying, this, this is who they were. This is one that I kind of laughed at, honestly. The bleeding Pharisee. Here was a man who would walk with his eyes closed just in case. He didn't want to look on a woman to lust after her, so he kept his eyes closed. Well, you know, when you are walking and you keep your eyes closed, you're bound to run into something. They were known as the bleeding Pharisee. Then there's the mortar Pharisee. He would wear a mortar-shaped cap to cover his eyes so that he wouldn't see any impurity or indecency. He just wanted to stare straight ahead. There is the, what am I yet to do, Pharisee. Not knowing much about the law, as soon as he had done one thing, asked, okay, what's my duty now? You remember the young man in Mark chapter 10 that came to Christ and said, what shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? There's a possibility that he was kind of living along in that line. There is also the Pharisee from fear. He kept the law because he was afraid of future judgment. But then there was the Pharisee from love. He served the Lord because he loved him with all his heart. He was religious. He was also real. 
he approach, his approach to Jesus indicates that he was truly looking for truth. I mean, here was a man that was probably twice the age of Christ, but he's going to make an admittance. Now the question winds up coming, why, <clears throat> why did he come to Jesus? Well, in verse 2, he gives Christ a compliment. And in the compliment, he kind of paints a picture of why he came. You know, I, I, uh, seriously, I would, I would love to have been standing right there and listening to them. Now, look at verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night. Many have thought, well, he came because he was afraid. I used to think that. I think sometimes we wind up reading into situations um, just, you know, like that. Well, you know, he's fearful. You know, he doesn't want somebody to notice. I think there's a small possibility of that. But then also there's a possibility here that because Christ during the day had these throngs around him, it could be that he went to Christ at night because he knew there was a better chance of having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. To me, this conversation is one of the greatest that is recorded in Scripture. Let's go back to verse 2 if we could. So the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, now again, understand, most likely, uh, twice the age of Christ, but he called him rabbi. He called him master. We know, not I know, but we know. It's obvious. Nicodemus has been talking to, quite honestly, several, maybe more, of his fellow Pharisees especially those that were along the line of his character and his desire for the things of God, they have taken note. And they're taking note early. They have heard him. I don't know how much they have heard and seen of him, but this is early on in his ministry. And he comes and he says, Rabbi, we know. Now, what, does he, what do they know? What are they admitting to? We know thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, remember this. The Jews, the scripture tells us, the Jews require a sign. If there, was, if there was something that needed to be said, if there was a lesson, if, the, if there was something that, um, you know, a, a, an edict from God, they wanted a sign. Sometimes it was a miracle. They, they want, you know, show us something that means that God sent you. They are seeing his miracles and they're hearing his lessons. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest 
except God be with him. Now, once again, we go back. I made mention this morning, maybe I, maybe I didn't, I, I might've forgotten to make this. You know how we're talking a lot about the coming of the Lord right now? There was a lot that was going on. I forget who it was that I read, but there was a lot going on in the Roman Empire. That's why the Roman Empire was um, kind of paranoid about somebody like Christ. And also there were those that came along about that time and they were put to death that, you know, their, their, uh, their followers were chased out and such. These Jews, these Jews had deteriorated to the point that they just simply wanted to keep power. They weren't interested, even though they had the record, they knew from way back, you know, 30 years before, when Herod said, okay, where, where, where's he born? And they brought out the scripture and they explained it. And that's why Herod went nuts. I remember when, uh, when my wife and I were again in Israel and we went to Masada. Herod at this time, I didn't really go into him this morning, but Herod was absolutely paranoid. Listen, you couldn't own a bird, a pigeon, a, a, a messenger bird. You couldn't own one in Israel at that time. The only person that could own it was Herod. Why? Because he would go to his place at Masada and those birds were used to carry information back and forth from Jerusalem to there. Nobody else could do that. They couldn't, you know, if, if you're going after his, you know, that's, that's bad. It was also just fascinating to be there and to recognize some of the structure I need to bring those pictures out sometime again. We need, to, we need to show our pictures from Israel. Just do it again to show people that didn't see it. Um, it's just fascinating. He, he, was, he was brilliant in how much money he spent on the Jews. Do you realize he built the Temple Mount? You can go there. I mean, you're standing right there. He expanded it to 36 acres and built that beautiful temple for the Jews. To them, this is it. We've got the temple. You know, we, we've, we've got, uh, you know, the jurisdiction of Rome, but because of them, you know, we have peace and security so we can run things the way we want. But again, there were those that had a love for God like Nicodemus, and they're watching and they're wondering. So when he comes to Christ, he gives him respect. He says, Rabbi, he refers to him in such a way that he's going to hold him in high regard. Again, a young man, half his age. He comes with a realization it's not a thing of, hey, you know what? You, you're, you're pretty good. You know, you, you do well. He came saying, listen, we believe, again, whoever we is, 
we believe you've come from God. Now, it's easy to look back where we're at and go, yeah, you know, I see that and understand. But again, this is turning heads. They didn't know what we know now, at least at this specific time. But he's coming with human reasoning. Why is he good? Well, he's come with these miracles, not quite embracing who maybe Christ is, but he's just learning now, which brings us to the challenge that the Lord gives him. Look at verse three. Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily. Now remember, John is the one that that records these things. When it was verily, verily, or truly, truly, what it was doing is it was emphasizing what Christ meant. When Christ said that, he's basically saying, Nicodemus, you need to hear this. What is that? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when we hear that, I mean, we've heard it a thousand times. We say it ourselves, you know, praise God, you know, on such and such a time I was born again. We, we read, you know, and, and there it is. They didn't hear that before. This is new and it has stunned Nicodemus. The nature, that when he said born again, it means from a higher place. It, 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 it refers to the things which come from God alone. And Nicodemus is hearing this for the first time. When he said the word accept, you see that? Accept a man be born again. That Greek word is in the imperative. He is saying, listen, you've got no other choice in what I'm saying. This is it. This is important. Accept a man be born again, literally born from above. There is no experiencing salvation. Now, Jesus has stunned him like that. Nicodemus has gone from, you know, talking to the Lord and and uh, admitting, you know, seeing what he sees and says, you know, we believe you're a teacher come from God. And now he's going, wait a minute, look at verse four, there's confusion. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the second time in his mother's womb and be born? Immediately, Nicodemus is thinking flesh. He couldn't grasp it. Now, we'd be in the same we'd be in the same place. We wouldn't understand, you know, well, wait a minute, Lord, wait, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And because of how he couched that with Nicodemus and stunned him, Christ was able to come back and begin to open up not only Nicodemus's heart, but all who read the scripture. Why is this important? 
because this is salvation. Watch this. He gives a clarification. Look at verse five. He's going to talk, first of all, about the instruments of the new birth. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I'd like for you to keep your finger there, and I'd like for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I don't know how many of you have ever had the opportunity to deal with people that believe baptism saves. Uh, I've been at it, you know, a, a few times. It broke my heart. One time when I was a youth pastor in Castro Valley for a couple of years, uh, one year I wound up teaching uh, at the Christian school that my wife was employed in there. And they had kids from all different areas. And there was a young lady that uh, was going to a church that, you know, you know you're, you're only saved by baptism. And I said, I asked her, I said, now listen, let's let just clarify for me, please. When you get to heaven and you, they ask you, why should we let you in? Would you say it's because of what Jesus did for you or because you got baptized? And she said, because I got baptized. And that is just drop dead wrong. And it's kind of broken my heart that there is an individual that used to go to this church many years ago that is now up to here in the Campbellite doctrine. I, uh, I want to read a verse that they use in verse in 1 Peter 3, look at verse 21. We're just going to read that verse. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I, maybe, maybe this is overkill. I understand that. But maybe this can help somebody that's going to be hearing this online. Uh, there are people that have taken this, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I have read people who have argued for baptism when people have said, well, wait a minute, was the thief on the cross next to Christ, was he baptized? And I was reading one of their people and he said, well, how do you know he wasn't? Now, now, wait a minute. He got baptized, then he became a thief, and then he's on the cross, and he's next to Christ, and he's cussing Christ out, and then he says, Lord, remember me when thou enterest into thy kingdom. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't wash. I don't know, Mike, I don't know if you use uh, this individual, but I like going to a fellow by the name of Kenneth Wiest, when it comes to questions on Greek. He is, he's, he's great at this. 
If you will forgive me, I'm going to read somewhat of a lengthy thing from him on this passage and then going back to what Christ says in John 3. I believe it's important. This is from Kenneth Wiest. The question as to the word figure, you see that word in 1 Peter. The question as the word figure refers back to the word ark or the word water is easily settled by the Greek grammar. It goes back to the word water. The word figure means the counterpart of reality. The Greek word baptism is in opposition with the word figure. Water baptism is clearly in the apostle's mind, not the baptism by the Holy Spirit, for he speaks of the waters of the flood as saving the inmates of the ark, and in this verse of baptism saving believers. But he says that it saves them only as a counterpart. That is, water baptism is the counterpart of the reality, which is salvation. It can only save as a counterpart, not actually. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, and this is important, were counterparts of the reality, the Lord Jesus. They did not actually save the believer, only in type. So water baptism only saves the believer in type. The Old Testament Jew was saved before he brought the offering. That offering was only his outward testimony that he was placing his faith in the Lamb of God of whom these sacrifices were a type. The moment he conceived in his heart that he would bring his offering to the tabernacle, his faith leaped the centuries to the time when God would offer the sacrifice that would pay for his sin. Our Lord said in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The act of bringing the sacrifice was his outward expression and testimony of his inward faith. Continuing, water baptism is the outward testimony of the believer's inward faith. The person is saved the moment he places his faith in the Lord Jesus. Water baptism is his visible testimony to his faith and the salvation he was given in answer to that faith. Peter is careful to inform his readers that he is not teaching baptismal regeneration, namely that a person who submits to baptism is thereby regenerated, for he says from the scripture, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism, Peter explains, does not wash away the filth of the flesh, either in a literal sense as a bath to the body, nor a metaphorical sense as a cleansing of the soul. No ceremonies really affect the conscience, but he defines what he means by salvation 
in the words there in 1 Peter, the answer of a good conscience towards, toward God. And he explains how this is accomplished, namely by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that the believer, the believing sinner, is identified with him in that resurrection. That's why we say when we baptize somebody, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we have victory over death. We have new life in Christ. Now, go back to John chapter 3. So the question is, verse 5 again, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, we've tossed out baptism, water baptism. Well, there's a couple of other possibilities, and maybe you've studied this out, uh, you know, however the Lord has led you. There's two other. First of all, there's natural birth. Because of what he says later, uh, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there's possibility, good possibility, that he's speaking about physical birth. There's physical birth. He would allow, you know, understand Nicodemus, there's that. But then there's the spiritual birth. Then there are those that believe, well, maybe he's talking about the word of God as being water. Well, where would we get that? Well, just a few verses, Ephesians 5:26, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Titus 3:5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Acts 3, excuse me, Acts 8:36. And as they were on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hindered me to be baptized? And he said, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So you take that and you pray. But we need to recognize this. Salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone. The new birth is imperative. Verse six, again, John three. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. When a sinner is redeemed, he literally becomes a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is why to me, it's worth it Going, going slow and digging deep in this passage. When we have trusted Christ as our Savior, we are fitted with the righteousness of Christ. When the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We're fitted for heaven. When we go to heaven, we're leaving this body behind. We're going to have a new body, a sinless body. But it's interesting to stop and consider. In dealing with this, Nicodemus, 
Once again, a man that is probably twice the age of Christ is hearing things that have stunned him. Later on, praise God, he, be, he trusted Christ. And watching him standing there, look at verse 7. He sees, he sees the look on Nicodemus' face and he says, wait a minute, Nicodemus, marvel not. Don't, don't, don't let your mind, bring it all together. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Once again, this is the imperative. There is no other way. But the truth is, it's the greatest of ways. It's by faith. There's no other option, no plan B, nothing outside of Christ. And then he gives him an image to think about because in where they were living, you know, there were things that they looked to that were physical. Uh, the, the, uh, the law had so deteriorated when it came to the keeping of it. Every, there were things that were, that, that, that were so physical that wound up, again, like I read about, you know, when it comes to the Pharisees, or then how to keep the law. There were silly laws. There were things that they did to the law that were so silly. And, and for instance, in uh, making it possible to go further on a Sabbath day's journey, they would take a long rope and they would tie, one end of the rope would go to one building or home and then they would stretch it and they'd go to another home. That made those two homes that were at a distance made them one. So you could keep the law and do a Sabbath day's journey, but go further than what a Sabbath day's journey. This is what they would do. It was silly. So he says, listen, I've got, I've got, an image. I've got something I want to show you about this. Look at verse 8. He says, he says, Nicodemus, the wind bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Wait a minute. Jesus is using the image of the wind to describe what the Spirit does. His movements, like those of the wind, they, they can't be predicted or anticipated. Uh, <laughs> We wind up riding our bikes and we start out on Walerga and we're going towards Watt Avenue and it's like, I just know we're fighting a wind. I, you know, and, and then I think, okay, it's going to kind of quit here. No, wait a minute, it doesn't quit. Okay, well, we were fighting a wind going this way, but it, we're not going to fight it going this way because obviously the wind is coming from there and we start going the other direction and guess what we're fighting? We're fighting a wind. You, can you tell which way the wind is going? You know, wind can be an amazing thing. By the way, I don't know how many of you, we're I'm kind of praying for them, but you know, here there were yesterday in Tennessee, they had tornadoes come through, one major one, just did incredible damage. When we think of wind, sometimes we get scared. The Lord says, no, note this 
Note this thought, this, this study of wind. Like the wind, the movement of the Spirit is invisible, but it's powerful, like we know what a wind can be, like a tornado. When he passes by, when the Holy Spirit comes by, he touches whom he will. That's why, you know, like this morning, uh, in, 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 in preaching, I, I don't know how many, how many here were truly saved. You know, they say you, you get a group, even a group that size. It's not just one that needs to raise their hand for salvation. There, there's others. Because again, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And I'm telling you, as a pastor and as a Christian, there are people that I've talked to before, and I'm sure you've done the very same thing. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Well, by their fruit ye shall know them. And that's hard. But at the same time, when the word of God is open, there's times, you know, you wind up preaching or teaching and your tang gets tangled and the words didn't come out right and all of a sudden you forgot what you were going to say, but then you go back. I'll, I'll never forget the testimony of uh, David Gibbs. You know, we've had him here a couple of times. He was, at, he was at, a, uh, at a men's meeting, big men's meeting. He said there was about 400 that were there. And <coughs> they had this fellow get up. He's going to get up and he's going to give his testimony. David Gibbs said the guy was awful. He, he's getting up, he's getting, he, he's, you know, he's getting, his tang's getting tangled and it's this. And, and finally he goes, okay, I'm done. Everybody bow your heads. And David Gibbs is, you know, he's, he's bound and says like, oh boy, Lord, please help, you know, do, you know, maybe one or two. He says, how many of you, you want to trust Christ? You know, just, you, you realize you need Jesus. 150 men stood up. He said, sit down. <laughs> he said, no, no, come on. Don't, don't, this, this is no time to mess. The guy has done a bad job in giving his testimony, according to David Gibbs. He said, now, if you really mean it, if you really want to trust Christ, stand up. 150 men stood up. 150 men were dealt with. 150 men made professions of salvation in Christ. David Gibbs couldn't believe it. And, you know, he's, he's talking to this other guy, and the guy said, uh, have you ever heard anything like this? And he said, no, it, it was really something. You know, that's one reason why I love it in giving the gospel here. I don't know what can happen even going through that camera up there or this microphone because you never know where the wind is blowing. There were people here that I knew needed Christ. They didn't respond. But we pray the wind blows in their direction, that the Holy Spirit does its work. 
You know, we can, I'm sure we've got stories, all of us, of people that we knew in Christ, excuse me, that we knew that needed Christ. And finally, decades later, they trusted. That's why we never quit praying. That's why, you know, we be not weary and well-doing. For in due season you reap if you faint not, even if the world would look and say, ah, doesn't matter. No, no, it matters. Look at verse nine and we'll be done. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Now remember, he's heard, he's heard some interesting things here. And Jesus answers with this, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, truly, truly, Nicodemus, listen, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. If I told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. That was one of his favorite titles of himself. We're going to go back into those verses. Not going to take the time tonight. But going back to the idea of the wind, remember the dry bones in Ezekiel 37? Remember that? They stood up and then the sinew and then here came the life. God moved over that which was dead. It became alive. Now thinking of Nicodemus, he is, I believe, humble, he's sincere, but there's a change about to be made and the wind is blowing. That's what we want. It was great to see the change in him over time in Nicodemus. Even with his vast knowledge of Old Testament, Nicodemus was still in the dark spiritually. We've got people today that are still in the dark. Never quit. Never give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the Spirit that comes and enlightens us according to your word. Really looking forward to talking to Nicodemus in heaven. I can imagine he never tires of telling about how he met you for the first time. Lord, while we're here in this time when the world celebrates a Christless Christmas, I pray that ours would lift up our Savior. We pray in Christ's name.